Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary. This episode from the Grace and Gigabytes book launch features the author Ryan Panzer and guest Dave Daubert. Our next presenter is Dave Daubert. Dave is the lead consultant for Day 8 Strategies, and he works with faith-based organizations to connect people to God's work in the world, and he supports revitalization for, for the sake of mission. He's also a pastor in Elgin, Illinois, and a writer. Uh, he's written a new book called Becoming a Hybrid Church, which is now available on the Day 8 Strategies website. So Dave, welcome. We look forward to learning from you. Here we go. Thanks for having me, Ryan, and uh, congrats on your new book. Um, it's always exciting to have a new book. Yeah, it looks like you need a few new books behind you there, Dave. So yeah. I wonder if you add to that bookshelf. <laughs> my house looks the same way. My, my wife says when I retire, we've got to figure this out. Um, but as you can tell, I'm at least a few decades from retirement. Um, I'm, a, I'm a young baby boomer. Um, but I do like books, and uh, I did just finish this one. Um, I wrote it with a guy named Richard Jorgensen. Some of you may know Richard. He's the uh, director for Evangelical Mission in uh, Lower Susquehanna Synod in Pennsylvania. Um, I'll share some things about it, and I resonated with the presentations we've already had. So in some ways, it's an odd thing doing presentations in a sequence of people when you don't know exactly what the people before you and after you're going to talk about. And uh, so I hope whoever's after me, I didn't steal your thunder. And um, I modified my slides a little bit here and there as Sarah and Kristen especially were talking because I could tell that there was a lot of kindred spirit here, which I think is really good. Uh, so there's my email contact information and my website. Um, the book's there if you want to get that. Um, we're still loading it up for Amazon and Kindle. I mean, it literally just came out last week. But if you want anything more from me or you find something interesting, um, I'm a good dialogue partner and always glad to hear from people. So uh, I'd be very thankful for any connections, contact. Um, like most everybody, 90% of what I'm going to share with you, I'm going to take credit for and stole from somebody who taught it from me or taught it to me. And that's not likely to change um, over the rest of my career either. We're all kind of learning from each other. Um, having said that, one of the things I'm finding as I work with congregations and I consult with churches um, as they're working with this, that, that getting online was frankly the easy part. Um, and a lot of people became experts right away in the eyes of their congregations when they figured out that if you point your laptop at you and push that live thing on Facebook and answer a question or two and push go live, lo and behold, you have a little TV station sitting in your office. And you could point it to somebody in the sanctuary or lots of places and, and get on. And so the initial parts of this work were, I think, um, very simple. But at the same time, it was mostly driven by necessity. It wasn't driven by some of that missional awareness or consciousness as much as it was, we better get online by Easter or we're going to disappear. It's a lot of adrenaline. Um, and frankly, worship, when we say we took our church online, worship is what almost everybody means. Almost nobody thinks about ministry in the holistic kind of sense of what it means to be the church and all the aspects of ministry. I want you to just think about just Lutherans, which most of us, although I hope not all of us are, are Lutherans, uh, but most of us come from that. And if you think about just the Lutheran pond, which is maybe a, a middle-sized pond in American religion, which means not a very big pond in American culture, if we're honest, there are probably over 5,000 online services every Sunday now online where you can watch a Lutheran liturgy and they'll either use the revised common lectionary or the narrative lectionary to preach for most of those. 
So a lot of duplication of services here. And frankly, online is kind of like one place uh, in that you could be anywhere and get there. So if you want to watch a congregation in Minnesota and you're in Pennsylvania, it doesn't really matter. And if you want to watch a congregation in Pennsylvania and you're in Minnesota, it doesn't matter. And so one of the questions that I'm asking is, does the world really need 5,000 or more worship services for Lutherans? Now add Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians. Do we need like 25, 30, 40,000 mainline services on the internet every week. Is that really what we are thinking about when we say we went online? And what does it look like? Now, my wife and I, every week, we look at online worship and we have an online service at our congregation. We've been working very hard and um, doing a lot of incremental improvements with technology and editing and all kinds of things. But we also watch two or three other services from a variety of traditions every week. And one of the things we're noticing is that almost every mainline church uh, the congregation that had probably relatively decent, some sort of on-site song leadership was really just really bad karaoke on online. That somebody who did a great job uh, leading other people in singing is not a very good thing to listen to in a meaningful way. And having them do five verses is five times the pain of having them do one. Um, in our congregations, we've also usually got decent sight lines. People figured out how to hear. But I'll tell you, online, we've watched some terrible audio, some awful video, uh, problems with bandwidth. And uh, people are putting out a lot of energy and a lot of time. And frankly, what we're seeing isn't all that exciting or all that engaging. And it's probably marginal, even for attending to the members that we have, although they love us and they love the place and it keeps them together. So they're willing to deal with it. But if we're honest, it's not going to reach one new person who doesn't have some other reason to stay. So one of the things I think being a hybrid church has to be thought about is it's not really about showing up online for worship. Uh, worship was a doorway for, um, for most congregations in the pandemic to, to get there, uh, but it's really not a destination of a congregation serious about being a hybrid church. It really has to think about bringing all the ministry of the church online and doing it in a hybrid way. It's not online instead of on the ground. We're going to be at different balances with different ministries within the same congregation. And congregations are going to find their own context and their own people and their own ways of interacting with their community are going to dictate um, even more balances. So it's going to be very organic. And it has to open new ways of working and new ways of connecting with new people. Um, and as somebody who primarily works with church engagement to, for the sake of mission and engagement for discipleship or um, evangelism. Those are two of the lenses that I have, discipleship and evangelism. Um, really, if these things aren't facilitating that, then we're probably spending a lot of time and energy trying to keep up with the, the shape of time without thinking about what is it to actually make meaningful ministry happen. So here's what I've noticed, that most of worship, because of it, most congregations are missing the low-hanging fruit for every church. The reality is the low-hanging fruit for every congregation is not worship. It's very hard to put on an engaging 30 or 40-minute worship service every week online with the resources and talent pool that the average congregation. Remember, the median Protestant congregation has less than 65 people on Sunday. Now, you start taking the music pool, the technology pool out of that 65 and say, do we have the resources to put on an engaging 40-minute uh, worship where people can interact and stuff? It's very difficult. doesn't mean they can't, but it's a lot. But Every congregation has a capacity to offer a class or a small group or do stewardship or be on Facebook. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of uh, resources outside of skill development and engagement. And if congregations would cooperate, I hear a lot of pastors and deacons and lay leaders say, man, it'd be nice to have four. We just don't have the time and energy to have four classes through the week. 
Well, you don't need, but if you had four congregations and you all put on one, you could quadruple your doorways and options and gifts and begin to cooperate because now you're not geographically bound. So small groups are just as easy in a congregation of 50 people as they are in Willow Creek. Stewardship online is just as easy in a congregation of 50 people as it is at Willow Creek. Adult education could be multiplied in small congregations through cooperation and line. And what I'm seeing is over and over and over again, congregations are missing these opportunities because they're putting all their eggs in the worship barrel. I'm not saying, especially during the pandemic, they should leave. But I do think we have to rethink online ministry to be much more holistic and much more thinking about all these things. Because reality is you might have a great worship service. Um, I say ours right now trying to be objective is in the 85th percentile of what I'm seeing for mainline churches. Um, but that means it's still 15% of what I'm watching online is better than I'm do- engaging in terms of quality. Um, so the real question is what I'm doing, can I generate relationships? And that means these other things need to be there. Um, these, these kind of things without online worship are really powerful by their own. Being in a small group has power and value and connection all by itself. Um, learning something new and interesting in adult education online has power value by itself. But worship by itself kind of, kind of stops. And so if you can invest in these other areas of ministry and encourage the people you're working with to invest in the other places. They're much more relational, much more easy to engage. You can watch a worship service online and not engage at all, even if the people are trying to engage you. It's very hard to sit in a group of six, even in a Zoom session, and not get engaged because a group of six by nature is engaging. So investing in these engagement points and relationship points is more important than worship, which isn't to say worship's not important, but it is to say worship without the other pieces is a dead end. And on the other hand, if these other things exist, then they provide on-ramps for places, people who do find you in worship. Because uh, the real key isn't that somebody comes to worship and then next week they come and watch your worship service again, but are they engaging in ministry? Are they encountering the gospel? Are they becoming engaged um, in a community of faith that helps them to journey? And ultimately, the, the things that people are hungry for and that congregations have to provide in meaningful ways are places for people to grow deeper and closer to God. If someone is going to connect with a church, it either has to help them grow spiritually deeper or be a place where they can continue the ministry of Jesus, that they connect to the mission and activity of God and get to join with God at work in the world. And then the thing that creates community is people who will accompany me on that journey as I'm trying to grow deeper in my own faith and discipleship or to engage in God's mission in the world. Do I have companions for that journey who help me make that happen? So so this is really what I'm finding, and I want to encourage you all to think about how do you engage congregational ministry as a whole, not just the worship doorway, which is literally where I'm seeing 80 to 90% of churches who are online are having online church council meetings and online worship and not a lot else in terms of regular stuff, maybe something special for Advent. How do we broaden that out? So the big question for me is if if it's changing a congregation and its people to be more open and moving forward in this, how do we do that? And this is where a lot of what Kristen and Sarah said before me, I think, overlaps a lot. Um, I would agree that it's really essential to have certain things. In in my consulting work, I use an umbrella framework and an action phase that 
underneath everything in this umbrella is some sense of purpose. Why are we doing this? And it's not why am I doing this, but why does God have me doing it? It's always the God question, part of the mission and our purpose to connect with God's mission in the world. Uh, what are those principles that are underneath that, those core behaviors, or maybe you use uh, core values or other phrasings, but, but what are those things that shape my behavior, those things that are permeating all of my actions? And then where in my context am I to focus most of my energy as I set priorities for mission and ministry in the world to continue God's ministry, to continue the work of Jesus in, in our community? And then there's some kind of action phase where these things which move from ideas to, to reality are connected with passionate people who care about them and want something to happen, who are willing to think and um, engage to think about, well, what are we going to do and when are we going to do it? And then they actually get out of their chairs and go do something. And I am amazed at how much energy goes into the preliminary pieces of planning sometime. And so little goes into coaching and accountability and support to actually make actions happen. And of course, the last one, practice, is where ministry hits the ground and working your way through three or four levels of this and not getting to the end of the journey means that there's just a lot of energy spent thinking about what we could do and not a lot of energy um, put into doing it. So, so this is kind of the framework that I use as I work through things. I think it's really important to remember process matters as much as outcomes. And I want to say it again, process matters as much as outcomes. Uh, I followed a pastor here, um, I've been here about 18 years, who was excellent at outcomes, but not so good at process and did some really wonderful things and a lot of damage while it happened. So I'm really thankful for a lot of the outcomes he produced, but he's not here anymore in part because of some other pieces. So as you think about something, doing the right thing and having it happen the right way are both critical to community and they build more infrastructure and ownership. One of the things that I've been working with, especially in the last three or four months, when it's become clear that the pandemic is is a longer term, short term thing. It's not the eight to 12 weeks people thought it might be in March, but now it's eight to 12 months and maybe longer. And so how do you think about things long term and short term at the same time? So I've been asking this question. What do you need to do from now to next summer to be stronger and more prepared for the future as a result? How can you strengthen your foundations for ministry for a post-pandemic church between now and, let's say, Memorial Day, the beginning of summer? Um, All estimates are that we'll have increasing number of vaccinated people and whatever the new normal is, which will not look nearly as much like the old normal as a lot of people think. Uh, whatever the new normal is, how can you build a foundation? You're not trying to just endure it so you can go back, but you're trying to build something out of this engagement so you can move forward. And then think about the next, let's say, two years, because that's a long time in a world that's still recovering from a pandemic that hasn't recovered from. Um, What are the things you learned in the survival tech phase when you were kind of, that you can now implement strategically in a more proactive way as a long-term asset in the next chapter? These two kind of, a two-vision thing. Now to summer, build a foundation to make sure you keep strengthening it and envisioning a post-pandemic ministry and what you should be doing and, and, and moving forward. Now, I hear the temptation to regress all over the place. Um, things people say, when this is over, when things get back to normal. Um, I was sitting with my wife last week, who's uh, part of our team here. She's a deacon and we job share. And she said, you know, watching this congregation's worship with people there isn't so bad. And we were watching another congregation. And um, I thought, well, it's not so bad. It really isn't a very good destination. Um, but she was thinking of all the work it is to do online worship and then do on the ground worship and what's, what's going to happen and, and the overload, the overwhelmingness of this for leaders and staff. And, um, and, and I'm not unsympathetic about that. I've felt that myself many a time in the last several months, but there's a temptation to regress. And I think part of our job as leaders is to make sure people keep leaning forward. 
Um, most churches are going to be tech utilizing, not tech based. There's going to be a lot of on the ground stuff. And, and in general, people have to be um, leaning into things because uh, churches adopt pretty slowly. And um, we can be harsh about that, but you, you should know that a high number of the election results for the 2020 election that was just less than a month ago were done using Windows 7 software. And that Microsoft actually agreed to keep that version of it alive because so many counties had not updated their voting software because they didn't have the money or the skill set to do it. And so there's a lot of places that are lagging behind in this. I want to look really quickly at this, and I know I don't have too much time here, but you've all seen these curves, I'm sure, before, most of you have, where um, early adopters and uh, innovators kind of see something, they begin to push through the system. And if it goes the way uh, it normally goes, eventually the conscientious rejectors, the people who aren't going to change no matter what, start pushing back, and you sort of keep working to see who's going to get to the middle first. Um, I've tried change like that in my own ministry, and, and I've won, um, but not usually without some collateral damage that was probably looking back unnecessary yeah, from a wiser point in my life. So I want to encourage this methodology. I want you to picture the last person in your know, late majority on an issue, and this person might be different depending on what you're talking about in your church. But the last person in the late majority is the person who will accept it when it happens and not leave and be upset about it but will not see it very early. Um, we had a guy in my church named Hans who was the last guy on our line. And when he decided a projector was okay in our sanctuary, we knew we could do it um, because we knew anybody that was further down the curve than Hans wasn't going to agree to it anyway. And anybody who was not as far down the curve as Hans had already agreed. So we had barometers in our system and we still do. I have people that I do find the people that you think love your church would do whatever it took to, to make it happen, but really aren't very happy about most of it and see when it is that they find that curve. When you get that person, you've probably got consensus. And these conversations are so important. Um, got to connect, listen for stories, tell your own stories. Um, we just put a wall in the back of our sanctuary or behind our altar in the sanctuary, moved our altar forward, repainted the sanctuary, put a wall up that's got a sacristy behind it, mostly to make it look better on screen for online worship, to be honest. And I designed the wall. I was an engineer before I'm a pastor. I had my son do some work. He's a graphic designer. Uh, we built the wall. When it was all done, I came into the sanctuary one day and I went, oh, and I really didn't like it. Um, it was so different looking even though I'd envisioned it, seen it on Photoshop, drawn the diagrams myself, the whole thing, my first reaction was, ugh. Now I go in there now and I'm used to it and I love it. And it's made so many improvements to our, uh, our sacristy, our altars closer. I could tell you why it's been phenomenal. But I'll just tell you, my first response to it was, ugh. And so I think it's really important to talk about your own struggles, that authenticity piece that was mentioned before. Um, and then be as conversive as you can. The last thing I want to say here is be conversive. Plant seeds, share excitement, um, help people remember, you know, tell, let them tell stories. Ask about times when they may, may have had a difficult change in their life and found it helpful. Ask about times when they had a difficult change in their life and they really struggled. Because um, your job as a leader isn't just to know the facts and get them to the right spot, but, but to make connections. And, and segues are a big part of what leadership is. So as I finish up, I want to say this. Start small with one-to-ones. Assemble people into larger groups as you go, that kind of working your way through. I find the most useful tools are praise and gratitude. Um, the more often you can praise people for the steps they take and be thankful. I write um, 10 thank you notes a week and my wife writes 10 thank you notes. Um, 
talk to people more like you want them to be. If somebody's resistant, don't go in and say, I'm here to convince you to not be so stupid, um, even in your own mind, but to think about these people at their best and treat them that way. And finally, never vote unless you have to. Um, if you have to win a close fight and vote to do it, um, you're going to end up with a church that looks more like the, the red-blue mess that our country's in as well. So I find that in my experience, the more tech you want to implement, the lower the tech platform you have access to have these conversations on, the better. Um, if you can talk to a person face-to-face, -face, that's better than the phone or Zoom. Um, if you can write a handwritten note, that's better than sending an email. That people who are tech resistant benefit from you loving them in the platform they're most comfortable on and stretching them at the same time. So I'm gonna stop there and remind you that um, we, lived, we all grew up in a post-pandemic church. Uh, this has been done before. And frankly, it's gonna be done again. Um, if you were born when I was, you just grew up too late to remember the transitions that created the post-pandemic church in which you grew up in. And uh, the kingdom of God is not waiting to see if we got this right. It's just figuring out how to break in based on how we move, because God's never been stopped by a pandemic before, and it ain't going to happen again. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate you sharing your expertise.